This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. Welcome back to Baselayer. This is David. We had a great conversation with Ryan Selkis from Masari. If you don't know who Ryan is, as I said in the beginning of the conversation, I really suggest getting up from the rock that you've been under for the last two or three or four years. Ryan has been in the crypto space for at least five years plus uh, as a builder, as an investor. Um, And what he's really addressing with Masari is something that's desperately needed. It's understanding these these systems, these networks uh, at a fundamental level. As an investor from the outside looking in, if you're trying to understand crypto assets these days, it's very complex. You, know, you really under- need to understand the networks and the protocols and the systems in place. And it can be a very scary and daunting thing. And what Masari is doing is creating a platform for institutional investors to understand those systems in a better more uniform way. So we talked about that. We talked about his token registry uh, that they've been creating, which is effectively like Edgar for crypto assets. Super interesting. And we talked about lots of different uh, aspects in the marketplace today. We also uh, introduced a new segment uh, called Signal to Noise, where it was a lightning round, uh, effectively talking about lots of different news items and pieces of information that are happening right now in crypto and determining from Ryan if they are signal to noise. Really love that segment. It's become a part of our podcast now going forward. So this is a great conversation. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to learn a lot. And we're definitely going to have Ryan back on again. So enjoy. Remember that nothing on Baselayer is investment advice. Please do your own research. On the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor. And then you'll hear the podcast with Ryan. Enjoy. Today's family offices and hedge funds face a number of challenges when it comes to trading and managing their crypto portfolios. On the trading front, siloed liquidity, opaque execution, and questionable compliance deter entry. On the management front, spreadsheet and manual workflows are still the de facto solution. These infrastructure and usability problems, which have been long solved in traditional finance, still need to be addressed in crypto. Lumina has set out to solve this problem. To find out more about Lumina, please go to lumina.app. This is David. And this is Amanda. And this is Baselayer. We have a very special guest today. We have Ryan Selkis from Masari. If you don't know who Ryan is in crypto, I suggest getting under the rock that you've been living in for the last two or three, four years and you know, trying to get some sunlight because Ryan obviously has been a very important person within the crypto sphere. If you don't know who Ryan is and you're a family officer, high net worth, you're going to learn a lot today because the work that Masari is doing is really critical to understanding crypto assets, understanding what's happening, what's being built. And so we're really happy to have Ryan. Ryan, how are you? Well, thank you for that nice intro. You're very welcome. So as we've been talking to our guests initially, we are less interested in about the time that you got interest, interested in crypto and the time that you 
found Bitcoin, but more in terms of the the why you decided to say, okay, I'm going to stop everything I'm doing and I'm going to completely dedicate my professional career to focusing on this asset class, this technology. So if you could, you know, <laughs> with that lens in mind, to give us a little bit of a, a kind of a, a runway as to when that happened, why that happened, like I said, and then give the listeners a overview of what you've been building at Masari from the beginning to where we are today. And then we have a lot of questions to go through. Sure. Um, well, uh, kind of open-ended start, but uh, I guess you start at the beginning uh, as good a, good a time as any, right? So, um, you know, I, I did get in fairly early, I guess, by today's standards uh, in 2013, but I'd actually heard about Bitcoin uh, all the way back in 2011. Uh, the thing is, I'm not an engineer, uh, so you know when I first heard about it, it was in the context of um, internet money and and uh, a couple of articles that had been written about this uh, regarding you know potential replacement for for gold. I remember the the debt sequester in in 2011 in the U.S. Um, was the most dysfunctional time, at least at that point, that I could remember. Uh, and 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 none of our leaders showed any ability whatsoever to to ratchet down spending or, or ultimately cut the deficit. So I, I started to look at Bitcoin as an alternative to gold. Um, and in fact, in in 2011, I made a colossally bad trade to short the U.S. Treasuries uh, ETF, and I didn't end up buying Bitcoin because I didn't fully understand it, and it seemed you know pretty shady still. Um, and then, you know, a couple of years later, of course, uh, if I had reversed that trade, I, 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 I would have been close to retired, I think. Um, but, um, but, you know, I got into it like a lot of other people do, just based on looking at Bitcoin, the asset itself and the dynamics of, of Bitcoin as a potential new store of value uh, that could, uh, for digital natives, uh, over time, replace the use case that gold had filled uh, historically. Um, and uh, it became a lot safer to dive into it in 2013 because uh, there was talk about the Winklevoss ETF. Um, Coinbase uh, had just come online and, and really started to scale earlier that year. And Fred Wilson uh, invested in the company in April. Um, for me, the, the kicker was when the feds were able to shut down Silk Road because it showed, okay, because of the audit trail of, of Bitcoin, Clearly, this can't just be a tool for terrorists and you know child pornographers and and all the people that that you would read about in, in kind of the mainstream media um, using you know Bitcoin as a, uh, a a killer app of sorts for its early monetary use cases. Uh, so you know when that happened, I bought my first Bitcoin on Coinbase. Um, I was actually in the process of winding down my previous startup, and all of a sudden I had like ten months on my hand before I was going to start business school. Uh, so I I had some time to kill and not really enough time to to go out and get another job. So you know I'd kind of just said, all right, I'm going to figure this out the next you know couple of months, because in the um, in the first few weeks that I owned it, uh, it went up like four or five times, and um, and it was kind of the the beginning of that first really you know mega rally that that you know took uh, a lot of folks uh, by surprise and and started to get mainstream pickup when it hit over a thousand for the first time. Um, so I got into this as a diligence exercise. You know, I just wound down a startup. Should I, you know, take the quick 5x uh, win that I just got and use that to pay rent, or or should I, you know, um, should I invest more? What you know, what exactly should I do? And 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 ultimately, I ended up liquidating my 401k, uh, which I don't recommend anyone else do. 
uh, I took the I took the financial uh, the tax hit that year, um, just because I wasn't paying myself a salary that year anyway. So I said, you know what, I'm going to take half of this and pay rent, and I'm going to you know take the other half and uh, buy Bitcoin. Uh, and that ended up being a, in 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 hindsight a, a pretty spectacular decision. Um, for the six months after that, it, it it looked like a pretty terrible decision as as you know the the market corrected and, and started to go sideways. So um, the the way that I started learning about the industry was just to write about it. Um, and because I had a bit more time and there wasn't really any good uh, information resources other than um, really Reddit, uh, you know, CoinDesk had just started um, earlier that year, but it was still you know very early on. And, uh, and the quality was a little bit hit or miss because it, it was run, you know, kind of like an early blog. Uh, and there just wasn't a whole lot of professional, you know, journalists covering it at the time. Um, and and otherwise, it was it was kind of Reddit um, was the primary source of information. And and Coinbase's blog at that point as well um, had a fantastic, you know, treasure trove of of one on one info at the time because they were really the only ones that could afford to put this out. Um, and so I wrote uh, daily uh, and and started to develop a bit of a following in the industry from what at the time was uh, a very small group, um, but in you know kind of subsequent years became you know kind of the executive class of of crypto, um, and um, and you know decided within you know the course of a couple of months that uh, this is the most exciting tech uh, and and kind of finance innovation that, that you know, we were going to see in, in my lifetime. And I, I would have uh, felt like an idiot if I ended up going to, to business school and, and missing out uh, for two years on, on what could be, you know, really the, the foundation laying of, of this new asset class. Um, I joined Digital Currency Group later that year uh, to help Barry with investing. My, my background had previously been in, in venture capital, so I helped him with investing and, and kind of building the core team at DCG and, and raising a large round of funding that we did in 2015. Um, at the end of which, um, uh, I said, you know what, I want to, I want to run another subsidiary uh, and, and spin up another business. And it just so happened that CoinDesk was up for sale, so we acquired that business, uh, turned it around over the course of the next eighteen months, got it to profitability, um, largely on the back of the consensus conferences. And then um, I had an opportunity in two thousand seventeen to. Uh, kind of do the same exercise that I had in 2013 with Bitcoin, but this time with Ethereum and ICOs. And uh, similar to 2013, when there weren't any good information resources other than Reddit um, on Bitcoin, there really wasn't a, a, a reliable source of information for uh, token data um, and, and both the qualitative and quanti quantitative associated with the ICO boom. So we started Masari uh, to aggregate basic information uh, about this new universe of, of assets uh, and particularly had a focus on filling in the gaps that coin market cap um, was either not covering or, or, or ill-equipped to cover um, such as you know more advanced metrics around actual circulating supply and what might be locked up uh, in treasuries versus you know truly circulating um, more accurate exchange volumes on-chain information, um, uh, developer activity and, and, and kind of a variety of other uh, metrics uh, that we were tracking through a dashboard my co-founder created called OnChain FX. But, um, but as, as he and I were talking, we, we kind of recognized the value of this um, Bloomberg-like dashboard that we could create. Still, uh, we needed some type of base layer for crypto information that anyone could build on, uh, right? So one of the problems with, with crypto data was 
uh, and, and still is, that people talk past each other, whether it's spot price, whether it's exchange volumes, whether it's circulating supply, um, all of the metrics that, that you know you, you find from a variety of these sources um, are flawed. And, and, and many of them have just uh, very, uh, very material errors. Uh, so our thinking around Masario is if we could create like a, a crowdsourced um, community commons uh, type of data repository, uh, then you know we with OnChain FX um, and anyone else, whether it's an exchange or another you know data service or research company, could at least reference the same source of truth um, at at the base of that you know financial data stack. Um, so we set out to build this, you know, kind of two-tiered business. One was, I guess you could call it almost like an Edgar uh, repository, which is the SEC's filing system for, for the equities markets. Uh, and then the other was, you know, kind of the tooling that's out on top to help people make sense and, and you know, develop their own filters and, and you know, charting and um, other, other uh, you know, screening tools uh, that, and, and alert setting tools that, that might be helpful for actually making an investment decision. I'm going to stop you right there because I think that's super interesting. I remember when you were building that and people were telling me that it was effectively the Edgar for crypto. And I think you call it a TCR, a token registry, effectively. Um, I'm always so curious. In this day and age of financial technology, we've had – in the traditional markets, as you know, we've had a lot of companies come up. We've had Bloomberg. We've had Thompson. Thompson we've had Reuters. We've had FactSet. We've had a number of different legacy players now. And here we are in an asset class that is now respectively 10 years old, if you if you want to date it to, to Bitcoin back in 0809. Why do you think when you were in, in 2015 and 16, why do you think there was just no building at that point in time? Uh, well, you know, at that point, it wasn't clear that the asset class was going to be an asset class, number one. Um, you know, number two, the only real use case at the, at the time that had any traction whatsoever was speculation around uh, Bitcoin itself uh, and, and this, you know, digital gold thesis. So there, there certainly were a ton of teams, exchanges, wallets, custodians that were looking at, at building infrastructure around how that asset could be handled. Um, but it was, it was uh, very niche. And uh, really until Ethereum launched, you didn't see the same explosive growth in other applications, other financial applications um, as, uh, as you would have expected. So it was a combination of, you know, in the, in the bear market of 2015, I think the, the cumulative market cap uh, dipped below 10 billion. Um, uh, at, well, maybe not 10 billion, I, I forget the exact numbers, but it, you know, certainly a fraction of where it is today. Um, and, uh, and, and so there just, there wasn't a lot of food to go around. Right. Um, so I think, uh, you know, people thought when Mt. Gox collapsed and we went from a thousand down to, you know, breaking 200 and, and we're, you know, 8% down, um, and didn't immediately spike back up by the way, it just kind of stuck there for a while. There were a lot of companies that are now, um, you know, multi-billion dollar businesses. Uh, and I know this cause you know, they're in the DCG portfolio that were, that were basically on their last leg. Some of them took emergency financing and 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 you know bridge financing to kind of withstand the storm and, and had to do pretty serious internal restructurings. Um, not all of them, you know, survived. There was there was consolidation back then. But um, I mean, if you look at the landscape back then, there was uh, there there really weren't that many 
uh, large crypto businesses, and it's because the size of the asset class was so much smaller. This do time around, it's 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 you know ten to thirty times larger. Do you see, and, and then Amanda's going to have some questions. Do you see any similarities between 2015 and 16? As you mentioned, you were at DCG. You saw companies in the portfolio needing emergency bridge financing. You saw the kind of the dire, you know, kind of straits that many of those companies were in. And what we've seen over the last year and a half of crypto winter is that a lot of those projects that raised ICOs raised in Ethereum and had very poor, if any, treasury management skills whatsoever. And so they might have been taking ETH at, you know, $700, $800 in ETH, maybe more. And even during the, the capitulation down to $80, a lot of them were not very uh, sophisticated in treasury management. Do you see any remnants or any kind of replication from 15 and 16 to what we're seeing today? Do you see that potentially happening this year or next year? Uh, I, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of similarities in the sense that some of the early Bitcoin entrepreneurs were, were not super sophisticated. Um, and many of the ICO teams were not super sophisticated, but the ones that did the best uh, in this most recent downturn uh, in Ethereum and the ones that previously had done the best in the Bitcoin downturn were the ones that managed their exposure to the underlying assets and just focused on building their businesses uh, versus you know creating a, a hedge fund by another name. So a combination of luck and also you know uh, uh, just foresight to not manage your balance sheet risk inappropriately. Um, but uh, I, like I said, I, I think the difference this time around, uh, first of all, money was a hell of a lot easier to come by in the ICO boom. Um, so people could fund multi-year runways uh, safely, even with an 80% downdraft based on you know what they've been able to raise in the bull cycle if they were all smart. That didn't exist in the previous uh, bear market because venture funding just, it, it was not there. Uh, at all, uh, unless you had a very credible team, and uh, or it or it shipped some serious product, uh, and even then, you know, you're talking about uh, fundraising in the in the two to five million range, versus you know the ICO uh, craze when when people were raising thirty million dollars at the drop of a hat. So thinking about that post ICO craze for a second, you know, um, in the Masari Disclosures res Registry, you have quite a few companies that have uh, been willing to come forth with both quantitative and qualitative information about their company's internal structure as well as fundraising. Do you think that as we you know, get further into crypto winter and they start to be more strapped for funds, do you see companies um, becoming less willing to kind of uh, you know, put forth those disclosures because it could potentially highlight, you know, significant financial difficulties? Or do you think that uh, they're still really interested in getting their information out there to bring more transparency? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think um, uh, it's going to depend on on the team, right? Um, I think, uh, look, I, I don't expect that there's going to be many fraudsters that try to join the registry, Um mm -hmm. because it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, I, on the other hand, think that even uh, teams that have lower treasuries, but that are kind of in this for the long term and long term philosophically aligned, uh, will continue to participate. Um, and and in fact, if they're continuing to hit milestones, right, you would expect uh, teams to find a way to to you know raise funding and um, and come out the other side of this market intact. 
um, especially if they have strong communities that are, are going to continue to support them. Um, I, I, I worry more about, uh, honestly, uh, uh, an overwhelming surge of, of interest in something like this because the quality of the registry depends on um, a pretty consistent uh, brand where people trust that the the entities that are on the registry are uh, abiding by its rules and 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 making good faith disclosures. As soon as you get a, a couple of of players uh, onto the registry that that you know might hide information or, or lie about certain data points, um, it it poses a risk to the entire project. But that's exactly why we've uh, made it financially punitive uh, to actually game the system and 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 you know be dishonest or, or get you know caught making a fraudulent disclosure in the sense that you know you lose a deposit you lose you know all the fees that you paid to get on in the first place and you get booted off pretty promptly if the majority of the folks in the ecosystem um, that are abiding by the rules you know decide that that it doesn't make sense for for you know a given project to be on the registry any longer that makes sense I always think it's so interesting when we talk about data in crypto because uh, you know, both qualitative and quantitative data it is a, a sore point for, for anybody trying to participate, especially on the investment side in the ecosystem. But there's still this, you know, this mechanism of trust. You know, crypto is about decentralization and removing trusted counterparties, but then there's trust when it comes to data provision. But um, that's maybe not something we're going to get around. But one other thing that I, I personally just, it's, it's my favorite thing about Masari. You have a tab um, from OnchainFX on the homepage about market cap mismatch. So we had uh, Nathaniel on the show uh, a couple weeks to a month back. And one of the topics we talked about is, is the, uh, the, the article that he wrote about how market cap is not necessarily the best narrative point. Um, so could you tell us a little more about the market cap mismatch tab and the type of insights you kind of see people getting from that? Uh, well, that's an example, I think, of just one of the many screeners that people can, you know, build for themselves on on-chain FX. It, it happened to be one of the early ones that we featured because it shows, uh, you know, a couple of the core stats that, that we've been focused on uh, aggregating, which is, you know, fully diluted supply and, and, and you know, inflation rates and, and just tracking, you know, the velocity of, of new tokens that hit the market in, um, in some of these protocols. But um, that one's particularly interesting because, you know, Grin pretty quickly um, amassed a huge following of uh, of supporters that uh, that are are you know actively mining and and supporting the ecosystem. But if you look at the initial price where it was trading, it was just insane because the the assumption was that you know uh, on a a ten year time scale um, at that price, it would be something like a you know uh, a twenty billion dollar uh, crypto asset, which at the time would have made it like number like number three or four um, on our list. And, and so what we were trying to showcase was um, this price is going to come down just based on simple supply demand uh, dynamics in the market, because, you know, uh, less than half a percent has been mined, you know, so far on a, on a 10 year time scale. Um, and uh, and I think you know some of the other ones that were highlighted in that particular screener that's currently on the homepage. Uh, have similar dynamics where they might, um, you know, they they might look like hot assets, but there's a ton of supply overhang and hidden inflation in their systems that's going to hit the market eventually, and and that has to get absorbed for the price to stay stable. 
Um, I think uh, we'll probably rotate that screener, uh, you know, next week with with a new set of metrics. But um, but the goal is for people to ultimately be able to create their own dashboards and and unique views, either based on their portfolios or based on trends that they're watching. That combines both qualitative and these quantitative metrics uh, that are available in on-chain FX. So in addition to the tabs and everything that you're compiling on Masari, I saw you also did some research recently on dApps, and we've had people talking about the utilization of dApps or the lack thereof. Can you possibly glean a little bit of insight into what you learned about the utilization of dApps, kind of where we are and the, the build out of dApps and just in general what you found from that? I mean, it's 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 super early, right? I think um, you know there's there's a, a good new site that kind of tracks how much um, how much market uh, value is locked in some of these applications. Uh, it's called DeFi Pulse, yep. and it's 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 a very simple leaderboard that just shows how much um, is currently locked in Maker, Compound, Uniswap, Lightning. You know, some of the top um, applications right now. Um, forget about dApps for a second in terms of like games and things like that. I mean, no one, no one's using them, right? Um, uh, for all intents and purposes, but th they are using things like Maker, right? There's almost $300 million now locked in um, in Maker contracts uh, and and uh, used as collateral uh, for folks to, to issue DAI and, and create the stable coin. Um, compounds, money markets, there's there's you know over 20 million now um, locked in. Um, you know, even something like Lightning, though, um, on Bitcoin, you know, is, is still less than three million in channel capacity and in, in total uh, that's being used in the network. So, any any applications are it's still insanely early days. And I would say that the only two applications in crypto in general that have found product market fit, and maybe you can count Maker as the third, um, but they would be uh, Bitcoin as a digital store of value. Uh, and Ethereum as a uh, almost like a distributed investment bank uh, for for fundraising and spinning up new tokens. So the ICO boom was, I think, maybe Ethereum's killer app. And you're starting to see the derivative of that with this whole open finance movement, uh, where where folks are actually building uh, meta tokens or ERC twenties on top of Ether, using Ether as as the primary source of collateral to um, build. Uh, lending applications, derivatives, prediction markets—you know, you name it—using using the underlying as a uh, as a reserve uh, in in lieu of U.S. dollars or uh, RMB or, or or any other national currency. Um, and by the way, in 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 lieu of uh, a volatile asset like Bitcoin. Uh, so I think you know that's that's where I I think our team has our attention is on the actual finance applications. Uh, that are getting built now versus you know the things that you'd see on like a DAP radar, um, which um, you know it's an interesting uh, tool. But but if you look at the numbers on DAP radar, like no one's using these things, uh, and I, I don't expect that to necessarily change in short order. So one of the like kind of almost games we like to play when we discuss, you know, any, anything in crypto with our guests is we, we like to talk about the future. So, um, you know, whether it's a couple of years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, we like to kind of take a facet and kind of and, and play the game that nobody likes to play in crypto and make a prediction. So when you think about the development 
of research in crypto and everything you've done with Masari and you look to the future, what, what does the future of research in crypto look like to you? Does it look like another iteration of traditional financial infrastructure where you, uh, you know, you, we say that someone becomes the Bloomberg of crypto or the fact set of crypto? Does it look like an entirely new mechanism? What are your, or, or maybe what's your ideal version of what research yeah. in crypto looks like? Well, I, I, th- I don't think anyone's going to build uh, the Bloomberg or S&P global of, of crypto like Bloomberg and S&P did with the existing, you know, uh, financial data stack. Um, and, you know, Bloomberg, it, it's, you know, quite simply, uh, information wasn't, wasn't as freely available, right? It, you know, Bloomberg was built when telecom wasn't really uh, pervasive uh, and, and, and information, you know, was hard to come by. And it was, this is pre-internet, you know, much less pre, uh, pre-cell phone. Um, I think, uh, the pace at which this industry in particular moves, the global nature of it, the fact that it's not easy to regulate and is not going to be easy to regulate uh, at any point soon, means that the financial data giants that are crypto specific are going to be much more social uh, in nature. And if you look at what we're building towards, um, it, it's it's almost like S&P Global uh, and, and Pinterest had a crypto baby, but I, I hopefully our, our our version of that will be less ugly than than if those two businesses just merged flat out. Um, but the ability to, to give people uh, a platform where they could uh, save information about people, organizations, assets, uh, third party research, where they could quickly consume you know curated you know feed of of news or social commentary. Um, and where they'd be able to customize their own charts and dashboards uh, to, to optimize across, you know, maybe a variety of, of projects or trends that they're tracking and keep that all in like a personal portfolio. I, I think um, that's the future. And I also think it's important to build for that end user base because all of the interesting content and all of the um, interesting research that's happening today not all, but 99% is happening from the folks that are building this in real time. Um, and the other 1% is basically just very talented communicators that are doing the aggregation work. So, you know, certainly I'd put my team in that bucket. I think, um, you know, the quality of Coindesk has, has continued to pick up. Um, I think the block guys are doing, you know, really strong work on the research side. Um, and then there are just, you know, some some phenomenal freelance analysts um, that that are, I think are doing a good job of, of you know, curating the, the industry's conversation. So, um, we want to build for that set and um, and acknowledge that um, that as long as we can elevate some of the highest signal conversations, um, regardless of where they're coming from, uh, we're going to be successful as a data and research company. And I think that's that's very very much at odds with the traditional financial system. Um, I I think that's going to persist for for quite a while in crypto. You know, you talk about five ten year timescales. Um, I don't see uh, I don't see regulation around what you can sell as as you know research tool uh, really hitting this market with with any degree of speed because you're talking you're 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 talking about um, speech issues and uh, an asset that's not necessarily a security or a commodity or a currency. So I think if I think if you're you know just making uh, good faith efforts to capture the essence of, of a lot of these conversations and and what's getting built. Um, it, it looks nothing like Wall Street, you know, equity research. So we're going to do, we have you for a few more minutes. We're going to do a new part of our podcast. We're going to do it called Signal to Noise, and it's going to be a speed round. So nice. sig- Signal to Noise. 
first question, price, signal or noise? Mostly noise for, um, for assets outside of the top five. Uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin and Ether and Maker, I think partially signal. Constantinople. Signal. Recently, the COO of Bridgewater left to go to a crypto startup. Signal and noise. Signal. What's happening with CDPs? Uh, CDPs, makers? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I, that's, that's definitely signal. Like I said, I think that's, that as a decentralized stable coin is probably puts it in third place behind Bitcoin and ethers as closest to product market fit for this industry. I have one more people using lightning network to buy coffee and pizza signal or noise. Uh, noise, but it's building awareness. Uh, and I think a lot of the applications that ultimately get built around lightning are, are going to be machine to machine um, versus, you know, the, the, the perennial goal of the Bitcoin or can I, can I buy my cup of coffee with this? Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of lightning, but some of the applications right now, it's, it's all marketing and, and, and kind of early tinkering. So if you're looking for, uh, yeah, just, just to balance it out. So everything's not signal that, that one, that one's probably noise. Last one. JP Morgan coin. Ooh. <laughs> uh, you, uh, I, I, this, this one sits on a spectrum. Um, I think, uh, noise, uh, with respect to it being a cryptocurrency, I think signal to it, uh, completely killing the XRP narrative in particular. Oh yeah. We didn't even have a chance to talk to you about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm hot, kind of tapped out on that one. I've said my piece, and it doesn't. It clearly doesn't matter now. That it's listed on Coinbase, and and retail customers can inexplic inexplicably buy a, a bank settlement coin, um, which is ridiculous. Coinbase Pro is one thing, but the the general wallet is is kind of a joke. But um, you know, uh, at the end of the day, good good for them. They're they're getting away with it. So, okay, last one. I know I just said that before. Neutrino. Neutrino. Uh, Let's see know, how uncomfortable we can make Ryan Selkis in 30 seconds. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a tough guy to, to get uncomfortable. I, I would I would say Neutrino. Um, I'd say Neutrino is noise in terms of the delete Coinbase uh, yep. meme that's going around. I don't think that it's going to have much of an impact. I mean, if you think about Coinbase's reputation with the hardcore Bitcoin crowd and the hardcore crypto crowd, that's that's not been their business for for many years now, right? They're trying to be a mainstream uh, developer and 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 you know ecosystem builder, and they've done a phenomenal job at it. Um, uh, where where it could be a signal would be uh, to the extent it really pisses off other engineers that are there um, that you know got into this for more than just money, and 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 look at this as a completely philosophically misaligned team. That was just invited in and and you know celebrated. So I, I'd be I'd be very curious to be a fly in the wall in some of the internal conversations uh, from the more libertarian focused you know devs that that are already there um, and see you know if that's been ruffling a lot of feathers. But I think externally it's mostly noise. So that was our signal to noise speed dating, I guess you almost call it questionnaire that we did with Ryan Selkis. We'll have to find a, a sponsor for our new signal to noise features that we'll do on our podcast. But one of the last questions that we have before you have to go is we've found that it's really interesting to see 
what motivates people. What's what's in your ears when you're working, when you're cranking away on your laptop? What are you reading when you're flying around the world talking about Masari? So if you could, just two things. Uh, what is your favorite book that you've read in the last, say, 30 days? And if you're listening to music, what are you typically listening to these days? Um, so I'll, I'll tackle the music first. Um, I generally... Um, when I need to get into a writing zone. And as you guys know, I write daily. So um, I can't really listen to music with words because while I'm typing, it, it just throws my whole uh, shtick off. But um, I, I I listen to a lot of musical scores. Uh, so the uh, Hans Zimmer Library is phenomenal. Um, the uh, so that's like Inception and Gladiator mm-hmm. and, and you know, a number of other you know phenomenal movies, uh, and then the uh, the Social Network uh, movie score is by amazing. Trent Reznor. Oh yeah, Trent Reznor is, is oh, just yeah. incredible. Um, and then uh, the last one is probably the Game of Thrones uh, soundtrack. But I I have specific pieces of that that I can listen to. Um, I can't listen to the theme song because then I think I'm you know gonna just go watch TV. But um, but the but but there are a few like half hour segments that I can listen to uh, pretty regularly and, and get into a good zone. So we'll have to have you back because I know Amanda's got a lot of questions about GOT. Then <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, we'll 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 do this again. I'm sorry uh, uh, we had to cut this one a little bit short, but um, we'll leave a little something for the encore and uh, and when we have uh, another announcement or, or set of announcements. Uh, later this spring, we'll uh, we'll get back on the horn. Amazing. Yeah. So this was Ryan Selkis at Masari, and you can find him on social media on Twitter. You can go to Masari's website and see all the work that they've done there. And we will be having Ryan back very shortly to talk more about what he's doing there at Masari and the important work that the team is doing. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks Thank so much, you, Ryan. guys. This layer, this layer, this layer, this layer.